Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. Hello, Inner Circle members, and welcome to the March 2017 podcast. This podcast is going to be centered around pre-production. We, Lydia and I, are trying to make the podcast grouped to the curriculum and the content that uh, we're delivering each month within the Inner Circle. Late February and early March is going to be a pre-production focus, so we wanted to kind of uh, answer your questions that have add that kind of vein of pre-production questions. But to start it all off, we wanted to address two things. In December of 2016, we uh, asked a question. Lydia specifically asked, what drives you as a filmmaker? And we wanted to have your input. So we wanted to share one of those. And this is from Rob Rusher. This is a hard one about what drives you as a filmmaker, he says. I love everything. I love the gear, the stories, getting my hands dirty, being on set. But what everything revolves around is the people and the experiences. The relationships I've built over the years is what makes me wake up every morning with a smile. It makes the 12-hour days feel like six. There's a magical feeling when walking on set, being surrounded by your friends. Within the large film, film community, there are small families, and that is something no other career offers. Keeping relationships and building new ones is what drives me down to my core. Thank you all at HV for expanding my family and building such an amazing community. Much love, Rob Rusher. Well, thank you so much, Rob. You're absolutely right about that. Um, you know, gear can come and go, but relationships within this business are so powerful and so beneficial for helping you build your career. I, I look back at all the relationships that I've formed. I think about Pascal Lighting it has been my rental house since, my God, I would say... I used them back in 1998 was when I first started. I might have been 94. Yeah, 1994. So we're looking at, what's that, 18 plus years? Yes. So this is a relationship that, you know, I always build on. Always calling the owner up and talking to him, telling what I, I got going, seeing how his family is doing. You know, it's just a, a way to always reconnect and uh, revitalize relationships. It's something you always want to do. I find that every around the holidays and the new year, I try to reach out to all my directors that I work with and just uh, wish them a happy new year and, you know, look forward to collaborating with them in 2017 and just keeping those relationships, uh, the family, the small core family of all these individuals really being connected and still, you know, feel like you're there and you're offering your services up to him or her. And, you know, 
and you just want to kind of get together and have a drink and just shoot the shit and just see what the hell you've been up, uh, they've been up to and how what's going on in their world what what have they been what what the challenges have they come across what positive things have really you know happened for them so that's what i have to say about that lydia what do you say Hello, Inner Circle members, and uh, happy March. So I just wanted to add on and, first of all, thank Rob Rusher for being such a vocal member of our Inner Circle community. I know Rob personally and really appreciate your support of this community, Rob, and answering questions and diving in. And this is where I would like to encourage you all to come out of your shell a little bit and really become vocal in our community because what I know to be true is that the greatness of the inner circle is this community and the participation, the resource building, the referring one another jobs, the having your question answered on set when you're stuck in the moment, all of those things, helping yourself, setting goals. Um, there, there are a lot of things that we could be doing in the Facebook, private Facebook community that we're not. And this is where I wanted to speak a little bit because I always challenge myself to bring new information to all of you. And I've been taking a deep dive into John Asaraf's um, Winning the Game of Money course as a way to make our content better and more robust. And what John describes is, um, and Rob, this is you 100%, aligning your passion and purpose. So what are you willing to trade your life for? Which I think most members of this inner circle feel that way about filmmaking. And then really determining your skills, strengths, weaknesses, and unique abilities. And I think sometimes we get really scattered and stuck, as Rob said, when you like to do it all. You know, you really may enjoy every aspect of filmmaking, but clearly that's not the most efficient way to be on set. And so what I would like to encourage you as you're forming your own projects or um you know, coming up with a small group is what can you do yourself? What can you delegate and what can you dump? Because those are, that's what John talks about is do it, delegate or dump it. And it's really based on what you love to do because work is not easy, but it should be fun. It should not be hard. And Shane and I always go back and forth because he's like, you know, it takes a lot to put into it to make it great. And I agree. But I think it should always feel fun and not feel like it's hard and awful. <laughs> well, I have to say about that is one very seasoned veteran in this movie business, the bit of advice he gave me when I was starting out on my uh, narrative career and features. And he says, if it is not a very hard, incredibly difficult amazingly stressful, almost, you know, to the breaking point kind of experience when making a movie, it will never be successful. Okay. So I hear you, Shane Hurlbutt, and I slightly disagree with you. And this is going to get fun for you because Shane and I agree 99% of the time. That's the creative process. And that is hard because you're stretching yourself out of your comfort zone and you're becoming creative in ways that you knew didn't exist within you. And so that feels painful because you're stretching as an individual. However, what I'm talking about is what used to happen to me as a nurse, and this is nothing against nursing, but it was the dreading going to work every day, feeling like every single task was the worst, most awful thing, feeling physically ill before I went into work, okay, because I was in the wrong career. That type of thing, like your job should feel amazingly fun and you should love to go to work. And if you don't, then we need to figure out for for you individually, what do you love to do? What would you trade your life for? And then from there, determine how you go about doing that and making money at it. Because I think that that is what is very, very critical. And one other thing um, on the do it, delegate it, or dump it that I just want to say, and then we'll move on. Um, if you can make a list of every single activity that you do within a day or a week, and John recommends that you write 
L for love, T for tolerate, or, you know, something that you really hate to do in H, and then go through your list and analyze it for yourself and see what you can dump if you hate it. And then the delegating um, is, you know, the tolerating piece. And then the doing it is what you obviously want to keep keep doing. So just a few little uh, tidbits of practicality to add to Rob's question. Next question. All right. This goes in this vein that we just kind of talked about, and I wanted to put this question in the mix. Now, it's kind of technical, and but it deals with pre-production because it's about selecting the correct camera to do the job based on a lot of times, not so much. Sometimes it's not based on the story. It's based on the budget. It's based on your location. And it's based on how many crew members you're going to have. So this is a, a great question. And it also uh, poses the first question, which we just uh, we just talked about, about being sharing. So here it is from Simon Woods in Australia. How you doing, Simon? Australia, I love that country, and I cannot wait to get over there again. We're thinking about doing a massive, expansive touring kind of in the fall of 2017, if it all works out, where I'd be able to create some inner circle meetups and uh, around the world. So it's a grand vision, and we're just hoping our schedule will be able to allow me the time to do that. Okay, Shane, you're bogarting the podcast because I'm supposed to ask these technical questions to you, remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll go for it. Okay, Simon, here we go. Sorry, I've just joined, and maybe this has been covered, but one of the reasons I joined was to get some answers. That's awesome, Simon. Here we go. Dynamic range. I've been shooting a dock in the Philippines mostly, in the remote islands. Very often, the lighting situation is extremely bright skies and sun in one half of the frame and very shady spaces in huts under palm trees and cabins of boats. How do you deal with this when it's only a camera guy and a sound recordist on the run? Do you have tips for getting awesome exposures in this situation? Similarly, just shooting in super bright sun is challenging. So some tips on this would be great. Example, using NDs, etc. Sorry if I'm jumping the gun. Tomorrow I might find this tutorial on your site. But anyway, I have asked the question. <laughs> nice. Well, the first thing I want to address is this part of your question. Sorry, I've just joined and maybe this has been covered. But one of the reasons I've joined was to get some answers. All right. Well, I'm here to answer your questions, but so are thousands of Inner Circle members on the Facebook page. So definitely use the resource. The content that we're creating is going to be set in a curriculum that, you know, if there's a question, I, I'm hoping that I've covered something like this in some of the, the content, but the best way to go for it is to ask this community. We have such a vast range of filmmakers in this group, and they are based on sharing and really caring about everyone within it. So uh, first part of your question, reach out to the Inner Circle members as well. All right, now for me answering your question. This goes into the pre-production process because Knowing that you basically have just yourself and a sound recordist, and you're going to be in these extreme situations, you want to choose a camera that can do extremes. And cameras that do extremes are in the 16 stops of latitude range. So an Aria Alexa, an Amira probably has 14 and a half stops. That's not bad at all. The weapon... Uh, has about 16 stops. The Dragon has 15 stops. So you're looking for a device that has a vast range of latitude when you go into these extreme situations. I find the red looks incredible. Day exteriors, blazing sun, pounding on people. I used it on Into the Badlands under extreme conditions, as well as Babysitter, where we had just beautiful, you know, blazing sun in Southern California. And it uh, it worked 
absolutely stunningly with absolutely minimal, you know, assisting with bounce cards or negative fill. So you're obviously going to the jungles, you're going into these remote islands. So one thing I would bring is some kind of a flex fill with you. And I would, like I said, in pre-production planning, I would list out all these things. So I would think about, okay, uh, I need a camera that can have a vast range of of latitude i'm and i'm going to be working in extremes where i have sunlight pounding the outside but i'm trying to film into a uh, underneath the 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 canopy of a forest so you know you're going to have bring something that's very small lightweight that the sound recordist while he's recording could hold or angle a bounce to fill an area i like the flex fills that have silver on one side and white on the other because the silver can really punch up an area very nicely from afar so you can grab a wider shot and have some punch into the shadows and then when you get into the close-up, you flip the thing over and go for uh, using the white bounce. The silver can also be used for overcast and liquid light, you know, north light scenarios where there you've lost the sun uh, and you're just reflecting the sky. The silver reflects the sky beautifully and puts a lot of nice highlights in their eyes. So these are things that are very small they can fit into a backpack they're very lightweight and they'll save your ass the the other thing that would be kind of essential in pulling this off is the ability to possibly bring like an led battery source light given the options out there i would say the cineos are a great resource of of having a ton of punch and they have battery as well and uh, they can be you know they're somewhat lightweight and or you know an led panel that is not sky panel sense but aperture makes some decent lightweight leds that have a ton of punch and and you can you know put v-lock batteries on them and and be able to you know have a, a good amount of power and, and punch and and lift up those areas that might be down and the apertures are very unique because they do have a ton of punch they are very small they have a good heat sink program on the back of them there heat sink profile so it's it's giving you a lot of punch for a very small lightweight scenario so Here's kind of the pre-production. It's like, you know, going through this and figuring out what story you're telling and what are going to be the budgetary as well as the environment limitations that you have, as well as the crew limitations that you have. And then you really need to kind of select that camera based on those sometimes. So the story might be saying one thing, but the... but. All the other indications are telling you another. And I have to many times go with what the budget and what my limitations are going to be. Let's say case in point, Act of Valor. That film was a film that had a very low budget. It had a crew size most of the time of under 10 people. And we had to be incredibly stealth, like a Navy SEAL team and small. So what device, what camera system am I going, that's going to fit into that budgetary and environment limiting box? And that was a DSLR. I knew I couldn't bring film cameras. I knew I couldn't bring big video cameras. I just didn't have the crew and I didn't have, I couldn't have all these skilled technicians as well. We had to have a camera that a director could put in his hand and lens a shot, that a producer could grab it and shoot action, that an AC or a second AC or a loader could grab it. That was the type of movie that we were we were making here. And so a lot of these times in pre-production, you just have to look at everything. What is the story telling you? 
What is your budget telling you? What is the crew size telling you? What what are these things all telling you? And then you kind of make the decision to go with a specific camera and a specific lens type based on all of this fitting within your budgetary box. All right, Lydia, what do you have to say about this? I have to say two things. Knowing that pretty much everything goes a little bit over budget, what we do, whether we're doing a short film, whether we're doing a workshop, we always pad our budget a little bit. Because if there's one thing that I cannot stand, it's a budget surprise at the end where something was double what you thought it would be or and then you're really squeezed. So I think if you pad yourself a little bit and leave a little wiggle room, it doesn't necessarily need to be double, but maybe it's like you're padding it by a third or something like that. It just takes the surprise element out of it. And don't forget the little things, the little teeny tiny attention to detail pieces that, again, going back to our latest workshop, we on the day realized that people didn't bring their own sunscreen and they started to get burned because they were outside all the time. So even though we said, hey, bring hats and sunscreen and all of that, um, I think it's very important to take care of your team members that are there with you. And it sounds like you're going to be in a really remote location. So this is the healthcare person in me coming out. <laughs> Make sure you have tons of water because I know a few times on Active Valor, water was challenging for the crew to get. So think very, very practically in terms of, you know, water, hydration, food, and sunscreen and whatever's going to protect you from the elements and your gear from the elements. So just the really practical little things that you might forget because you're so focused on the story. Yes. On Active Valor, there were many times when we were left out on an island or, you know, to get a specific shot in an action sequence. And you had to make sure that you had your camelback on you. And the camelback was so important to be able to stay hydrated. I would fill that thing up and I always got a big one. I wasn't this guy saying, oh, I'm going to be real stealth and lightweight. No, I had two liters on my back. And uh, that was a huge wake-up call for me on Active Valor when uh, I we were in a place where we didn't get water and we didn't have water and we were separated and we were spread out like you would not believe. And I was never going to make that mistake again. So um, another little tidbit on Active Valor that's that's a little awesome story is that my wife, Lydia, always beats me up on what she calls overpacking. Uh, When I go to different locations and, and on movies, she says I am the ultimate overpacker. And the reason I've become an overpacker was based on active valor. We were told that we were going to be down in San Diego. And San Diego is a nice warm place in the summertime. And, and well, it was, it was kind of fall. And I mean, it's still very warm. And we were down there and we were we were told we were going to be coming back and then we were going to some other location well that changed with the blink of an eye all of a sudden we were in san diego and then we were taking the next flight out to ukraine so i went from all that i had was a very small you know lightweight kind of you know, not overpacking kind of suitcase that was all warm weather gear to the point where we're going directly to the Ukraine where I literally froze my ass off. There was no way to get And then we were only going to be there for a week or so. So it's not like shipping anything over was ever a possibility. So I had to buy all of my stuff in, in the Ukraine in Kiev. And then we were immediately from there. We're like, they're, we're not going back. I'm like, Oh, where are we going now? Well, there's a conflict in Cambodia. We're going there. So then we went to Cambodia. So it's like, I was like, my God. And then at the end of that, then I was told I was going to Croatia. And this was on another film. I had 
nothing. And it was the winter time of Croatia. So here it is, the classic scenario of Lydia telling me not to overpack. And I literally surrounded the globe in four months and had nothing ready or prepared. Thank you very much, Lydia. Yeah, I'm still hearing about that, people. (laughs) I'm trying to be stealth for the airlines where you're allowed one bag. But yeah, we've all learned on that one. All right, Simon, I hope that that answered your question and you enjoyed the stories with that one. Next up is... The question is anonymous, and it says, I usually struggle and feel somewhat uncomfortable when asked a straight question by a producer. What will we shoot on? What lighting do we need? Especially when I know this is a low-budget project, a short film. I'm okay with the technical side, and I know what I would like to use and why, but I start to think if this is too expensive for them or too complicated for schedule and crew size, which I do not know yet, too. Also, often I get asked very early, maybe after the first meeting with the director, what should a typical approach to the question look like? Do you make a wish list, which you then cut reasonably after arguing with the producer and director? Also, in general, do you make your list of equipment after discussions with the director and possibly location scouting? Okay, I'm going to let Shane take the majority of this question. But the one thing that I am going to say is that um, you want to have an open and expansive mind going into any project. Because if you're constantly thinking about the numbers first, then you're already creating obstacles, even though they're there theoretically, but you're already creating them in your mind and it's inhibiting your creativity and your creative process. So imagine, you know, thinking I can only afford this, then you've already ruled out all the other pieces of gear that you could possibly use that may work. And maybe with a little bit of creative budgeting, there's a way to get that in if it's important for the story. So that's my kind of big, broad picture view is that you never want to limit yourself creatively because of budget. There's plenty of time down the road to keep chipping away at the budget. But when I do any sort of business planning, for example, for Hurlbut Visuals, it's always, you know, very expansive without limits. What do we want to do this year? And in your case, what story are we trying to tell, right? And kind of take the budget out of it. And I know that that may seem counterintuitive initially, but for your creative freedom, I think it's really necessary. And once you creatively have the discussion with the the director and producer, then you can kind of, you know, have subsequent discussions where you get a little bit more practical. So that's my two cents. Shane? Absolutely. So Lydia basically said, you know, talked about how to not put yourself in the budgetary box right off the bat. And so let's talk about that side of the question. And then we'll get into the real answers that you need to give the producer because he's obvious he or she is obviously asking for it. So the theoretical scenario is to not put yourself in a budgetary box. I, I think that every movie I've done, I really don't, I know what the budget is, but I never think within it. So I'm always trying to think completely out of that budgetary box because I know I'm eventually going to be crammed into it. And ideas that uh, you have about cool ways to photograph it, cool compositions, cool locations, cool gear, you know, one shot wonders, you know, whatever you've come up with, not thinking in the budgetary box, will hopefully get crammed into it. Some will come in there if you think outside of it. If you only think in it, then you're going to be limiting yourself hugely from a creative standpoint. All right. Now let's get back to the producer question. What will you shoot on and what lighting do we need? All right. Well, I get asked that Every it's almost the first question, so you're absolutely right. This is the way it goes. Uh, what are we going to shoot on? Well, what is the story told you that we're going to shoot on? What's the story set up? How is it going to work? Let's take into the Badlands for an example. AMC had done all their TV series shot either on film or with the Alexa, 
And I, reading the story, talking about the colors, talking about the Asian influence, talking about the style and how we wanted to go with the, you know, in conversations with the director and the production designer and hair, makeup, wardrobe, just the initial conversations that we had concept-wise, I thought that the Red Dragon would be perfect for the story. Well, immediately the producer says, well, they've never shot with the Red Dragon before. Uh, it's 5K and they don't want all they want to shoot is 720 or 1080. Um, so, you know, how are we going to fit this into the budgetary box with storage and all that stuff? So I'm like, well, it's very simple. You just pull up the compression uh, slates on what a Alexa ProRes 1080 output of your, you know, camera is going to be. And we cross-reference the two of those. 5K at a 7 to 1 compression gave us the same file size as an Alexa 1080 ProRes file. So based on that, we shot 5K and we shot at the 7 to 1 compression. So that was you know, us working with the studio coming to me and saying, well, we're not shooting 5K. That's ridiculous to being completely squelched within 24 hours with sharing them the stats and all the information that I had in my arsenal ready to, you know, because I knew that was going to be a fight right off the bat. So you want to kind of, you know, immediately set yourself up for success by doing all the right homework to know that, hey, you're going to come to me and you only want to shoot 1080 and I'm going to come to you and say we can shoot 5K at 7 to 1 compression and it will be the same file. And then once they ran it past all their post-production supervisors and everything, they came back and said, you got it, Shane. Perfect. We're going Red Dragon. So the that's what the story told me. Now, what is the budget telling me? Well, there was really no budget on this project when we started. It, it, was, it was massively growing out of control, and uh, AMC was trying to put the lid on this thing, but there was no necessary budget. They know they wanted a grand vision. They know they wanted wide, expansive world, so that costs a lot of money. And usually, these are done with a pilot. So you really expand the vision and build the world in a pilot, and then you cram it into the episodes after the pilot. So everyone has gotten that wide expanse, and then you go into the pilots and you're more internal. I mean, you go into the episodes and you're more internal. So, but that wasn't the case with this. Our pilot was like three episodes. So budget-wise, I really didn't know where our budget laid other than, you know, we were, we were told every day that we were very over budget, but no one was telling us or, or offering solutions to it because the vision was so grand and they wanted that vision that it was hard to shove it into its budgetary box. So based on that, you know, I knew I was going to have a, a very good crew size. They told me what my crew size was. They told me that I, I put my lighting package together. I, I try to be very proactive. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Let me kind of describe both ways. Even before seeing the locations, even before really having detailed conversations with the director, I start to put a shot over the bow. So I'll put a camera package together and I'll put a lighting package together based on what a daily package on a grip and electric truck would be and a daily camera package. Those are sent in and bids are started to come out from those immediately. So right within the first week, we know uh, what this weekly package is gonna cost on grip and electric as well as on camera. This is very important. Those weekly packages, you can, I put way more in there than I really need so I can then cut them down. So we, that initial conversation within the first week and a half of pre-production that you're hired on, the producer is immediately coming up to you and telling you whether you're insane or we just got to cut a little. 
So basically, you already are testing the waters and getting kind of a, a good understanding of what that budget is by these documents. Once you have that idea, then you can take the location scouting and more detailed conversations with the director and production design, hair, makeup, and wardrobe, and really kind of quantitate it and bring it down to hopefully fit into their budgetary box. That is something that I think is absolutely essential to do uh, within your first week of pre-production. So let's just look at your question. You were saying, oh, before, do you make a wish list, which you can then cut reasonably after arguing with the producer and director? Well, first off, let's never try to argue with the producer and director. Let's try to uh, collaborate with them. On Fathers and Daughters, Richard Middleton was the producer. And I had heard through the grapevine that he was very tough in regards to keeping the numbers on point. He didn't like to go over. He liked to be under. And when we put together the camera package and the lighting lists right off the bat, within that first week and a half, he said, I cannot pay for this. There is no way I can pay for this vision. And I said, so I went back after hearing that and I talked to Gabrielli. I said, you know, I really want to give this a very unique look. I want the camera to be able to move in the ways that you have written into the script, the shot list and describing how the camera can move from room to room and go into here and go underneath beds and come out of beds and, you know, all this cool stuff. But they can't afford that lighting and that crew with our 13 and a half hour day that they have budgeted. And, but I think they could afford all of this if we keep the hours down. And he goes, okay, what are you thinking about? I said, there's days when we, let's see if we can do an eight hour day. Let's see if we can do 10 hour days. Even 12 hour days saves us money. So, Based on the conversation that I had with Gabrielli, the director, I went back to Richard Middleton, the producer, and I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We want this vision. We want all these lights and all the crew and all the pre-lighting crew and everything. So when we walk in, all the stuff is ready to go and we will limit our hours. You have 13 and a half hours budgeted. How about if we do some eight hour days? How about if we do a lot of 10-hour days and try to keep our long days to 12 hours? And he said, all right. So Richard and I had a handshake. And out of that handshake, we started to make fathers and daughters. And in the first initial week, we were doing 13 and a half hour days. And he was like, Shane, you're not, you know, Holding your end. Yeah, holding your end of the deal. And I go, Richard, I'm getting used to the crew. The crew is getting used to me. We're starting to find a rhythm and it's going to work. Trust me. And on by the end of the second week, we had done a six-hour day, we had done an eight-hour day, and we had done two 10-hour days. And then he came to me and he goes, whoa, yeah, you got something going here. I said, yes, we're going to make it work. And sure enough, we did. So these are things that you want to, you know, I think I, I divided it up. 33% of your job as a cinematographer is the vision, delivering the director's vision. The other 33% is delivering the project, the feature, the short film, the commercial on budget, working with the producer to be able to do that. And the other 33% is motivating and inspiring your crew, really firing them up, thanking them, uh, bending over backwards to kind of show when they just rock it out that everyone knows within shouting distance of telling them how great the shot was or how the focus was amazing or how the crane move was extraordinary. This is your 99%. And the last percent is for you. <laughs> I love that. I have one thing to add because I think this is a very important distinction with this question. So 
the producer and the director may want to know what camera you're shooting on and what lighting you're thinking of, right? But the the very initial, the very, very first discussion is a creative one. You know, you're going in, let's say, to interview if you haven't gotten the job or, or you know, share your ideas if you have gotten the job. But the numbers piece, don't be forced to give a number immediately in the first meeting. And I think that this is where um, we tend to have our hand forced into a number. And it, it's happened to me before where somebody will, you know, we pitch an idea for a short and somebody will say, well, what does that cost? What does that cost? And I've learned the hard way not to open my mouth and just give a ballpark figure because what happens is people hold you to that number. They remember that number. And if you're off by 20% or 25%, you know, under budget, then they will hold you to that number. So um, there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what, I really need to sit down and and now that we have all these great ideas and we're shooting on the red and we're using whatever lenses, I need to put these numbers down and um, get back to you with, you know, a projected gear list and a projected. So there's nothing wrong with that. Don't fall into the trap of being forced into a number right away because you think if you don't give it, you might lose the job. And this is a very, very important point because I think especially for people starting out, they think that they have to have all of the answers right away and they're not as seasoned in their negotiation techniques. So that's my final point. Shane, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, I think we're good. Let's move on to the next one. Hi, Shane. I'd just like to ask you what you've done during your periods of downtime to motivate yourself, to keep creating. I imagine you've had moments just like anybody else where you need to muscle through those times when inspiration isn't just handing over a big, exciting serving of, here, try this new thing and all the different ways that you can go about achieving it. To me, this is where I find the greatest value in Shane's inner circle, because you often putting out truly inspiring content yourself, and I draw inspiration from learning. I've been a member for the full two years and will continue to remain a loyal member. I can't thank you enough for mentoring me and allowing me to grow at my own pace. Thank you, Jared Tetro. All right, Jared. Well, you are very welcome. And both Lydia and I uh, thank you for those very kind words. Yeah, I mean, I have all the definitely we have there's downtime within this business. You're you're self-employed. You're a, you know, an independent contractor. You don't have a salary position. Uh, Money is not guaranteed to you every week. So keeping yourself fresh and keeping yourself, you know, trying to take in as much during those downtimes. When I'm down, I see movies. I go to a lot of movies. I read trade publications, you know, uh, International Photographer, HD Video Pro, International or uh, American Cinematographer, Hollywood Reporter. I want to keep up on the news of what's going on. Variety. ICG. Uh, yeah, ICG. You know, so I'm I'm constantly reading these and reading the, the stories that I feel that can inspire me. I, I don't read the damn thing, you know cover to cover. I'm, uh, I'm picking the, the, the stories that seem like it would inspire me uh, in a way that uh, I want to be inspired at that time. Going to the reference book store. So I have a couple stores, uh, Arcana Books and Hennessy and Ingalls. Uh, they're both down in Santa Monica within a walking distance of each other. I like to go down there and just dream and just look through photographic books for a whole day to see if anything really inspiring grabs me. On the internet, just looking at and building my reference files. So, um, you know, when I go into interviews, I go in with what I call a lookbook, and it's kind of uh, broken down into the pieces and parts of what reading the script, you know, inspires me to ideas and 
pictures and still photography and stuff. So I like to, on my downtime, I like to just surf the web and find interesting photographers and, and different colors and, and moods and tones and compositions. And I just fold them, put them into these files on my laptop, uh, so I can pull from, uh, and future, um, you know, projects that are coming up. Yeah, that's, and going to museums, kind of looking at the masters in photography and the masters in, in, uh, paintings and just kind of, you know, looking at light and different landscapes and architectures as well. Just really kind of snapping Instagram shots in my mind and, and putting them in the memory bank so I can then recreate that on uh, my next project. And I think to remain creatively fueled after having living, lived with Shane so many years now, I mean, we're out in nature a lot. Nature is the most gorgeous piece of creativity and um, an architecture traveling around the world. Travel is so important because when you are just in the United States, it, it gives you a very, very limited vision, as gorgeous as it is. But the architecture of Europe and the architecture of Asia and, you know, whether it's saving to be able on a vacation to visit those places. And believe me, Shane and I, it's not like we just get to whip around the world for free. I mean, we budget this in, right? So sometimes it's on a job, but other times um, for our family trips and that type of thing, we, you know, we budget and we save all year to be able to take our kids there. And it's, it's, it's incredibly awesome to experience it with somebody else. It's one thing to go by yourself, but for example, experiencing uh, architecture through the eyes of our 18-year-old and 15-year-old and what they notice and what young people gravitate toward is very different than what Shane and I might. And so that is super special. So I would say architecture, antique shops, getting out in nature, traveling the world, just as a bookend to what Shane uh, was saying, to remain in creatively inspired. And for myself very specifically, I take either a mastermind class or a new, Shane was making fun of me because I said I had homework to do. <laughs> and when I take a course, I'm all in. And I do that to keep my mind fresh and to bring new information from a different lens to the inner circle that's not filmmaking. And so that is critically important. Challenge yourself with something that you've always wanted to learn or take or take an online course or, you know, because that makes you creative in a different way. And you may be more creatively organized or learn new things that you can take to the film industry. But always keep learning and don't worry about the fact that you're not working or you're in between jobs because that is the trap. And then anxiety comes in and creativity gets killed. So don't worry about that. Focus on the positive on what you can be doing to fill yourself up during that time period. Yeah, I mean, it was so funny this morning because Lydia and I were having coffee together and we were just talking and all of a sudden she's like, you know, Oh my God, this Asaraf guy is uh, so good and you got to try this meditation and everything. I'm like, okay. And then all of a sudden she's, she walks upstairs and goes in the office and, you know, I'm like, all right, well, you know, I'm looking at our podcast questions for this morning and she's up there and she's up there and she's up there. Where the hell is she? And she comes down and she goes, I'm printing out my homework, you know, and it's probably homework that will, that will eventually kill me because uh, I've become the, the goddamn guinea, guinea pig <laughs> to everything that Lydia wants to try on me. She's like, all right, yeah, I got this new, you know, uh, you got a leaky gut. And I'm like, how do you know I have a leaky gut? Well, Dr. Axe says you do and take this stuff, you know? And I'm like, you know, all of a sudden I, I'm like, God, you know, Lydia, my stomach's not feeling very well. <laughs> 
Okay, well, we'll try something new then. Uh, you know, so it's like, I'm understand that we will not tell you anything that does not work unless I have been beaten up by it in some way. If it works really well, we'll be the first to tell you. But if it's not doing really well, we're not going to just tell you about it and go out there because I have to be the guinea pig for the whole inner circle. I, I love this because this is the preview for our lifestyle section. So just a quick side note, and then we're going to move on to the next question. We want to know what you want to learn about for lifestyle. So I've been diving deep into essential oils and nutrition, time management, wealth consciousness, um, mindset, everything that you can imagine, and teaching myself. So I would like to hear from all of you what you want to learn about, and will adapt what I'm learning to filmmaking. And I think it's very, very exciting. So, for example, I want Shane to get on bone broth, and we're going to get that ordered oh, and try that. God. <laughs> so, <laughs> so stay tuned because it's going to be very exciting. Okay, next question, unless you had something else to add. No, I just, the we tried, she goes, I want to make bone broth. So, you know, we went to Whole Foods and got the bones that were uh, in the back there. And these bones used to be free, but when you go to Whole Foods, the bones are $35. So we got these, we boiled them for 48 hours and we got this incredible broth. So uh, there's an easier way that I guess is freeze dried, right, Lydia? Pills, pill form. Oh, pills. Wow. So I don't have to ingest that nasty ass stuff. <laughs> All right. Okay. What do you got? Okay, so the next is from Jonathan Gentry. And Jonathan, it's so great. I know that you're a really active member of our community. And so thank you for all you've contributed. Hi, Shane. Thanks for all you do to spread the knowledge to the community. You're a true teacher. I have a scenario question. Here goes. Let's say that you have four bright, motivated, but unskilled people at your disposal. Money's not a factor as they are motivated by the project itself. You have 10 minutes of content to produce, most of which is geared toward training and interview slash talking heads, plus some B-roll. You have a month to get them ready by sending them information to research on their assigned task during the shoot. The question is, since they will be multitasking, how do you divide the tasks among them? As always, thanks for your deep insight and knowledge. All right, Jonathan. Well, I think these four bright, motivated, unskilled individuals, you have to find out what skills they have. So by interviewing them uh, and asking questions of what they love, what they don't love, uh, what they you know, what they went to school for. You can see whether they're going to be multitasking. Maybe one was good in math. All right. I see this person's going to be really good at, at numbers. Maybe they can start to do budgets. You can start to grab, you can get little, you know, budgets and call sheets and everything off the internet that are kind of there to uh, help in this process. And then from who kind of you know, is, uh, seems like they have some decent common sense and, uh, can handle lighting and camera and, and, uh, you can guide them to assist you in all these specific ways. Now, here's a great story. So I grew up on a farm in upstate New York. And on that farm, there were many of my friends that chose other routes than Hollywood. And one of them lived about a half mile from me, and his name was Tim Carr. Now, Tim Carr was a genius. He graduated in the top of his class, and he went to London School of Economics. Just by saying that, you know, this guy has got his shit together. So he comes out of London School of Economics, and he's trying to find which way he's going to go. And he ends up landing a job in San Diego because he wanted California weather. Who wouldn't? And he heads to San Diego doing numbers for a construction firm. Years go by, two or three years, and all of a sudden I get a call. Hey, Shane. I'm like, yeah. 
Hey, this is Tim Carr. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm good. Hey, uh, I'm down in San Diego, and I'm doing numbers for a construction firm down here, and I was wondering, what do you do in Hollywood? You make movies? And I go, well, Tim, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a key grip, and this is at that time, I was a key grip. You know, I'm a key grip in the business, and, uh, you know, I, I'm working mainly music videos and commercials. Oh, well, I'd like, to, I'd like to get into that. Is there a spot for me? Well, here you go. This is a highly motivated, incredibly intelligent, but unskilled person in the ways of Hollywood's movie making. But. What are his assets? He is a mathematical genius, and he grew up on a farm where he milked 150 cows, drove tractors, plowed fields, dragged them, planted them, baled them, harvested them, everything that I did. So the dude's going to be a kick-ass grip right off the bat, right? I had, he came out and he immediately was infused into my grip team. He was the numbers guy. He's the one that could calculate the load on rock and roll truss. He knew how many motors we had to put to be able to balance the weight. He did all the trigonometry, all the geometry. I mean, he was a such a powerhouse. Then he started to get into lighting and he started to watch me light and watch me assist lighting, watch me shape it. And, you know, now we stand at our ages that he's like 48, I would say, because he was five years under me or three years under me. He's 48 or 49. He has a fleet of uh, grip trucks now. And he works out of Austin, Texas, out of Los Angeles. He is one of the most acclaimed key grips in the business. And this is the, the Cinderella story here. This is a guy who went to school at one of the most acclaimed economist schools in the the world. Economic school. Oh, sorry, economics. I'm bad with that. Economic. Here is a guy that went to one of the most acclaimed economic schools. Economic schools, sorry, in the country, in the world. And he ended up being an amazing key grip. So. Uh, to the answer to your question, Jonathan, with the right guidance, with the right understanding who these four bright, motivated, but unskilled people at your disposal, who they are, what's their core values, what's their you know passion, what do they want to do with their life, who, what do they gravitate towards, uh, you can mold and shape them into being incredible filmmakers. And Jonathan, we do this regularly with our mentees that come to Hurl But Visuals. So it's figuring out what do they love and supplementing them with the tools because I think so many people make the mistake of, well, they should know how to do it. And if you have lists or practical things that you could give them or tell them how you want them to research the way you like it done. In other words, as much as you can front load these people with the knowledge and with the tools and with the with your workflow and the way that works for you, it will help you so much because you won't get frustrated with the way they're doing it because the way that they do things may not be the way that you like them done. And I see this over and over again. So when we have a new intern or a new mentee coming in, it's like, here's the Hurlbut visuals way of doing things. And they really study it and they understand our workflow. And then it's amazing how that shortens the timeline of their learning. So just, you know, you can't give them enough detail is my point. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jonathan. And thank you all of the Inner Circle members that put, you know, that sent these questions in. Again, please continue to send questions. 
Like I said, we're trying to theme all of these podcasts based on what all of you are learning. So pre-production questions, post-production questions, production lighting questions, camera lenses, lifestyle, uh, all of these questions we want, uh, we want to give you answers on. And uh, so continue to uh, submit those and put them into our uh, database. And thank you all so much. And continue the dialogue on the Facebook community. Don't forget to reach out to one another. Continue to put your questions up there as you have been doing. And we cannot wait to be with you again next month in April. Have a wonderful spring, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots on the ground, immersive learning that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.